Ion 2020 episode 181. Have 2020 Vision with Ion 2020, your source for the news and events in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election. I am Ray Eaton, and I will keep you up to date daily until November 2020 with a libertarian perspective on the candidates and their policies along with the news. Thank you for joining me. Now let's clear our vision. Hey y'all, it's Ray Eaton here, the host that brings you the news, the events, the things that are going on with the 2020 elections, including the debates. That's right, every day that they have a debate, I will be watching it, and I will be making sure that I bring you the latest from that debate. I will probably be one of the first podcasts to go ahead and produce a debate show every single time as well, because I stay up late, I work on the de- work on the podcast immediately after the debate, before I even start listening to any of the talking heads and stuff, so you get kind of like my my true feeling about the debate, and then at that point, I put together the show and I release it, so uh, obviously if you're watching the debates and you're watching some post-shows there, they're going to be the first ones, but for podcasting, uh, I just make sure that I put that thing out pretty quick, so go ahead and tune in tomorrow and you'll be able to hear my thoughts on the debate afterwards, because it should be... <clears throat> Half interesting, half not, I guess. If you're, a, if you're a liberal, if you're somebody who gets excited about all these socialist ideas and all these uh, government takeovers of everything, if you're that type of person, then yeah, you're going to be pretty darn excited about this debate because you're going to have about half the stage that are pretty far left. And then you're going to have about half the stage that are kind of trying to stay in that sound, that sound rationale type. They sound like they're a rational... Uh, rational democrat i guess you'd say uh during the debates as well so you're gonna have different people that are coming from different perspectives but uh, all of them all of them do talk a lot about all the policies and all the positions that they want to enforce upon the united states and so forth so that's something that should be uh interesting to you if you're a libertarian i know for the last round of debates and the debates before that i was i don't know i mean i was just sitting there about ready to stab my eyes out and uh and turn it off essentially because I couldn't, I, I just can't stand hearing all these candidates talk about how much they want to take over from the, have the government, federal government take over. They have this assumption that the federal government should do everything, everything. I mean, there is no, no, there is no part of the economy that they do not want to touch. There is no part of your lives that they don't want to control in some ways, except for personal lives, obviously. Like, they don't care if you are, you know, from the, from the social side of things, they don't really care if you're gay or if you're lesbian, if you're transsexual. If I mean, that that's fine because libertarians feel the same way about that stuff also. But when it comes to economic issues, when it comes to taxation, when it comes to just economic control over parts of the of the economy, like the medicine, like healthcare, like your retirement savings, I mean, all those things are things that these candidates just want to get the federal government involved in. They want the federal government involved in every part of business. They want businesses to have to be accountable to the federal government on every single thing as well, not just taxes. They want to have political political control over the corporations. They just want every part of the government to be involved in every part of the economy. I listen to these candidates talk and it's just it just drives me absolutely crazy listening to them. It makes me sick to even have to watch this stuff. But you know what? I do it for you. I do it for you. 
That is who I do it for to make sure that you don't have to watch them, okay? You cannot watch the debates, and then I will give you a political analysis of the debates afterwards. I will tell you from a libertarian standpoint how these candidates matched up. I will give you a libertarian view of the 2020 election. That's what I do Monday through Friday for you. So if you want to hear that show tomorrow, if it's your first time listening, and you like libertarian podcasts, or you just like to have a counter view a view that's a little bit different than your own, and you want to hear that view, then hey, go ahead and subscribe to this show, okay? That's the best way to hear the show tomorrow. 180 shows previous to this one as well, so you can listen to all those shows too. There's tons of topics out there that I've covered, okay? And I want to make sure that you are the most up-to-date, aware of what's going on. Because you have friends, you have family, you have people that you're going to be seeing around Thanksgiving, you're going to have people that you're going to see over the next couple of weeks months and over the next year who might have different political political views than you they might have different ideas about their government than you they might feel like the government should be in control of all that stuff they might feel like the political leaders should have more control over different parts of the economy they might feel like the government does too much or too little or not enough they might feel like the politicians are good people. They're good-hearted people. They're uncorruptible. I don't think anyone thinks they're uncomfortable. But you know what I mean. These people, everyone has a different relationship with their government. Everyone has a different feeling about what they want their government to do. They have expectations that are different from yours and mine's and other people's, right? And it's our goal and it's our job. It's our challenge, really, to educate them on that, to let them see that the government doesn't do things efficiently, that money is left better, or money is best left in the economy where it's going to be used in the most efficient and most effective ways. And if it's not used in the most efficient in the most effective ways, at least it's left in the hands of the person that owns it. Yeah, you might think that money is better spent elsewhere and that and everybody else's money should be spent somewhere else. But it's their money. They can do what they want with it. It's their property. They can do what they want with it. It's their lives. They can do what they want with it. That's what politicians do is they think that they know so much more than you about how things should be allocated, how resources should be allocated across the country, across the world. And then they use political means to make those objectives objectives happen. And the political means is the use of force. They're willing to confiscate. They're willing to pass laws. They're willing to use the brutality of the government if they need to in order to get their ways. That's not a peaceful way to live. And we need to start teaching people. And that is our challenge, everybody. That is our challenge of this day, is to begin to move the message of liberty forward. We have the academics out there. And I heard a really good point the other day when I was listen to another podcast I believe it was maybe I was reading a book I'm not sure but the libertarian academics they have a use in our movement they do they're putting together the rational views and the and the ideas they're putting them out there on how a world would work in a libertarian environment in a anarcho-capitalist environment even a lot of people are putting together things to make it more palatable so when you are talking to your friends, you can lead them back towards one of our academics who are putting together palatable ways 
to understand how a free market economy will work, how a laissez-faire economy would work, how a system without government would work. That's what we're, that's what our goal is to do in those that are the academics is to make it more palatable for the normal person. Socialism has become very palatable for people. They understand it. They think to themselves, wow, wouldn't it be great if we all just got together and took care of each other? That is the way... That's because they had their academics in the 1900s. We have our new academics. We have the libertarians from the 1700s, 1800s, but in the 1900s, we have a movement that really gotten started. And with the academics today, they are the ones that are helping to make it sound more reasonable, sound more palatable, sound put together, put together arguments in a way that people can understand. And then we're the foot soldiers, though. We're not the academics. I'm definitely not the academic. You know that. <clears throat> I barely understand how to communicate these issues sometimes, I feel like. But I try. But we're the foot soldiers. We're the ones that need to get out there and talk about the movement, talk about liberty, talk about freedom, talk about better ways to interact with your government, better ways to interact with people in our society, more peaceful ways to interact with people within our society. Because there is a way to interact peacefully without having, obviously we interact peacefully among each other most of the time. But when one person says that I think it should be this way, and then they go to the politicians, and they get that politician on your behalf to force others to do it, that is not a peaceful way. Yeah, you think it's a peaceful way, but it's not a peaceful way. Because in the end, that will be enforced at the point of a gun. At the the barrel of a gun, it'll be enforced. And we need to get away from that. And that's the thing that the academics are now talking about. And making a more peaceful society. You hear lots of podcasts that talk about it as well. A more peaceful society. And now we are the foot soldiers. So it's our job to get out there and really talk about it. And start changing the culture. Or else we're going to have a bunch of politicians on stage. For the rest of our lives. That do the same thing that these Democrats are going to do tonight. And what is that? Promise more. Promise more spending. And if you don't do what they say, they will point a gun at you and make you do it. That's the way the Democrats will work if you if you let them. But if you start changing the changing the culture, changing the society on what they believe their government should do for them, the politicians will fall in line because they won't get elected otherwise. So we gotta play on the fact that they wanna be reelected. We have to play on the fact that men respond men and women, sorry respond to incentives people respond to incentives and if the incentive to get reelected is be a libertarian more f- or be a person that advocates for less government if that's the incentive they're going to go along with it they're going to tailor their message to your view they might not really believe it they really might not have that ideology that you have but they will tailor their message to that because they have to pander to the people in order to get themselves reelected. So people respond to incentives, and if that's the incentive, they will do it. They will certainly do it. But today we have a bunch of people that are going to get up on stage tonight 
And every single one of them pretty much believes the same thing. The government should tax more. The government should confiscate more people's wealth. The government should force unionization on everybody. The government should force everybody to be in a one-size-fits-all medical system. The government should force everybody to pay for everyone else's college. The government should force everybody to... Or force all employers and force everybody to be living under the system that they dream is the best system in the world. That they this this utopian idea that they have. Now, ideally, these you know these people, or the reality is these people won't get a lot of this stuff done. But the thing is, is they'll try. They're slowly changing the way that people perceive this stuff to where Medicare for all sounds like a good idea now to some people, whereas four years ago it didn't. They're moving that ball across that, across that field, towards their end zone, inch by inch. It's our job to stand in front of that and make it so that they can't do it as well. Okay. So, that's all I got for you guys on the, on the debate. I did the debate shows, or I did the show individually on almost all the candidates last week. So you can go back and check those out. Okay. To talk about their issues and their politics, but most of them have the same views. More government control over the economy. More government control over your lives. More government control over your pocketbook. That's what they want. That's exactly what they want. And they'd say, they'd, they talk about it as if they're the ones that are being charitable. They're the ones that care about the poor. They're the ones that care. But no, they care about getting elected and that's it. And that's why they believe in those views. That's why they've decided that they're going to go along with those views. Now there's a few that probably really do believe it down to their soul. Most of them probably believe it down to their soul that that's the best way to get things done. But government force is not the best way to get things done. Things can be done if things things can be done outside of government force through conversation, through talking about it and getting people to understand the best way to do things. If you can convince somebody to do something, you shouldn't need force to make it. If it's a better way, you won't need force to make things happen, right? So, the other thing I wanted to talk about really briefly today, and I just thought to myself, man, this is just crazy that Donald Trump was talking about this, right? And you know his defenders are going to say it's such a great idea. His defenders are going to say, oh, Donald Trump, he is a businessman. He understands these credit markets and the bond markets. He understands interest rates should be low. He talked about this in a tweet. He says the Federal Reserve should get our interest rates down to zero or less. We should then start to refinance our debt. Interest could cost our interest costs could be brought way down while at the same time substantially gathering or lengthening the term. We have the great currency power and balance sheet. The USA should always be paying the lowest rate. No inflation. It is only the naive naivete of Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve that doesn't allow us to do what other countries are already doing. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that we are missing because of boneheads. 
the Federal Reserve should get our interest rates down to zero or less. He's talking about having the Federal Reserve get us to negative interest rates, guys. So let's read, let me read an article that I found on um, CNBC, okay? President Donald Trump on Wednesday continued his verbal assault on the Federal Reserve, which he blames for slowing the economy, tweeting that central banks should cut interest rates to zero or even set negative interest rates. The president also called Fed officials boneheads in his tweet. Eh, we won't worry about the boneheads term. That's what everyone else is focused on, the boneheads term. I don't focus on that. I focus on the zero interest rate. Do you realize? I mean, so it's great when you buy a house and your interest rate is really, really low. The lower, the better. Your monthly payment's going to be less. You're gonna, you might refinance your home to a lower interest rate. That's great for the person that's the borrower. But what about the saver on the other side of that equation? What if you're the person that wants to not get in debt? but save money and you decide to put your money in the bank there used to be a time when you'd get 3 or 4% interest on a savings account there was I remember like 10 years ten not more than that actually it was like 15 years ago I had an account that would get 4.5% interest on it right now it gets like 0.2% interest I think like pennies nothing but back then you'd get you'd get pretty good interest rate on that so it allowed you to put money into a savings account into a very less risky place into a very liquid account and still earn some sort of return nobody can do that today at all where do you get the returns at then where are you going to go to try to get a return on your interest on your uh, savings you're actually forced to at that point if you want to get any return on your savings to do something that's a little bit more risky than a savings account so where do you go you go to a bond well bonds are really low also bonds you might get one or two percent three percent go for a little bit longer one you get four percent but those are not quite as liquid as a savings account right that savings account that money's just sitting there transferred over to your checking account if you need to it's pretty quick so what do you do then? You see, you're seeking a better return. Imagine if you are the person who retired at the age of 65, and your goal was to retire, and you were like, "Yeah, man, I'm just gonna, you know, transfer all my money into bonds, live off the interest, give myself a five, six, seven, seven percent return interest on these bonds. Nice, you know, government bonds, treasury bills. Give myself a nice interest rate. But no, the interest rate is like." one two percent three percent at the best so if you have your million bucks you're able to instead of having 60 or seventy thousand dollars a year off of that or fifty thousand dollars a year that interest rate goes down way less to thirty thousand dollars even even less than that sometimes right so you're forced to at that point you're chasing returns you're chasing the return on that investment so you're trying to figure out hey how am i going to get myself a better return so I can retire earlier. I'm 50. I'm 45. Or I'm 30 years old. I'm going to put it all in risky stuff now. That's fine. But the thing is, is everyone else is putting their money into their riskier stuff as well. Is that causing a bubble in riskier assets? And when the cards fall, does everyone try to pull their money out 
and then the cards fall even further and faster? Do we have an even deeper recession because of it? Those are questions that you got to ask yourself when you're asking about zero interest rates. Yeah, probably the best thing you can do when you have zero interest rates is go out and buy as much as you can on credit. That's what these companies are going to do. That's what the most well, the most politically well-connected, the richer people, and so forth, that's what they're going to be able to do. They're going to be able to go out there and take out larger and larger loans, build more and more stuff. You see it every day. Every time they break ground on like a new Taco Bell or a new McDonald's or a new a new grocery store. These places are expanding fast because they're getting that money so cheap. It makes them so they make different decisions than they otherwise if there would have been higher interest rates. Market interest rates. So when you have low interest rates, not because of the market, but because the Fed is kind of pushed into that direction with Donald Trump making statements like this, you're going to end up in a very bad situation where businesses and people are making bad decisions, decisions they otherwise would not have made if interest rates were at a market level. Now, I'm not sure, though, that interest rates should be at a higher level or not. That's not something that I can get determined. That's not something that any individual can determine. That's not something that a group of smart people can determine. That's only something that like the market can determine, right? And what happens is this. When you have lots and lots of people leaving the riskier asset market and trying to buy into bonds to be a little bit more safe, it's going to drive the price of bonds down. It's going to drive the return on those bonds down because there's more demand for those bonds, right? And that's going to end up making it so that those bonds go from 3% down to 2% down to 1% as more and more people demand it. But as less and people less people demand it in order to get the get the people to buy into those bonds, then the interest rates are going to kind of creep up. That's just the way that the market works. So who knows what the exact interest rate should be? I, I guarantee you the Federal Reserve chairman has no idea. Donald Trump definitely doesn't have an idea of what the interest rate should be. But the challenge is the challenge is that we need to be in a position to be able to re- make a return on our savings because that's where growth comes from is the savings. All that savings that you have, all that all those assets that you have that you buy into stock market, that you buy into the bond market, that money is then used for better purposes. Building investment, building buildings, building houses, things like that. That money is invested. So anyway, I think that we have a situation right now where Donald Trump is trying to influence the Federal Reserve and push them in a certain way. And I don't know if that's going to be a good thing. Now, it might be a good thing for you if you wanted to start buying up property, I guess, and turn it and sell it and then buy up some more. I don't know. I just think that it's a it's a slippery slope to go down when you have... Donald Trump pushing the Federal Reserve in a specific direction towards negative interest rates. That doesn't seem like the best plan. It doesn't seem like a a way to continue to grow the economy. It doesn't, I mean, what happens if the economy starts to take a downturn? There's no way for the Federal Reserve to do what they normally do, which is if if the economy starts going into the tank a little bit, or if they start to see a recession, they lower interest rates to try to spur a little bit of growth. Like, that's the normal thing that they do. That's their pattern. Now, it causes the bubbles and stuff. We are in a bubble, guys. We are 
moving towards that bubble. And I don't know exactly what's what's going to happen or when it's going to happen. No idea. I just know that you can't have you can't have low interest rates and negative interest rates for that long without some negative inflation, like inflationary pressure happening. But we do have deflationary pressure with the baby boomer generation retiring and stuff, though. And they're spending less. So that's going to be deflationary on the economy. So maybe there's maybe somehow the Federal Reserve, by lowering interest rates, is doing a good thing in some way. But I think it just needs to be a market. They just need to set it through the market. That's the, that's the best way to do it. That's the way that you know that we'll, you will not have big bubbles and those bubbles pop and so forth. And the Fed is the best term we can use. That's the best uh, st- statement that I can say when it comes to this, all right? So um, that is my two cents for the day on that particular issue. I actually had one more article that I wanted to get to, and I think I have time for it. So uh, I'm going to jump into one more article for you that I thought was quite interesting, and hopefully you do too. The article is from Wall Street Journal, and it says, Warren's assault on the retire on retiree wealth. You think about it, right? So there's a there's trillions of dollars out there right now of retirees' money in pension funds, in their 401ks, in their IRAs, in the money that they saved their entire life while they were while they were, you know, working. The people that are from, um, I think it's 55 years old, have 73% of the value of domestically owned stocks in the same share of America's total wealth. 73% of America's total wealth is owned by people 55 years or older. Never heard Bernie Sanders say that, huh? The top 1% have 70% of all wealth in America. So is that saying that the people that are 55, they have... having 73% of the wealth, are they the top 1%? Yes, probably that's true. That probably is true. And the reason why is because they, what did they do their entire lives? If you were 20 and you had a million dollars, most likely you inherited it or something happened that was like, you know, you really worked hard when you were younger and developed something and were able to sell. I mean, you, you, you would be it would be strange to see a 20-year-old with a million dollars. Absolutely unusual. But for a person at 65, not so strange. Not so strange to be worth a million dollars, to have a million dollars in assets. To have their total net worth over a million dollars. Not strange at all. But your entire life, you worked, you bought a house, you sold that house, you bought another house, got a bigger house, paid off that house, that entire house now is worth you know, $400,000, $500,000, you were able to save and scrimp and save, you know, pinched pennies, spent your kids to college, but you continue to save and save more. You got yourself like a million dollars in your IRA and you're in your, or in your 401k or in your pension fund. So it's all just sitting there and you have this value there, right? You worked really hard to make all that happen. You pinched pennies your entire life. Now you're 65 and you're able to retire, and you have all this money just sitting there. You worked your butt off. That's true. The person that's 35 years old is expected to have a certain amount of wealth. The person that's 55 is expected to have a certain amount of wealth. 
And the person that's 85 would have a certain amount of wealth. It's just the way that it is throughout life. You earn more and you save more. My situation today in my early 40s is way different than it was in my mid-20s. My assets are way different than they were back then. And so are yours. So are yours, I'm sure. I mean, the net worth of an 18-year-old is going to be so much different than a 65-year-old. But what happens is, uh, I'm, I'm looking at this article today, and Elizabeth Warren, she has this idea that she wants to start making it harder for companies to invest their money. What she, her goal is to do, she has an assault on the retiree wealth, and the way that this is going to work is this, guys. So most of these people that are retired, they have money wrapped up in lots and lots of investments, right? And those investments are in businesses. And any business that's worth over a billion dollars or more will have to not file as a corporation in Delaware or in Maine or in Florida or whatever corporate state that they're going to incorporate in. They have to become a U.S. corporation, a federal corporation. So the federal government has direct, can directly oversee what they do. And in that world, she wants it set up where the corporation is not designed to increase shareholder wealth, but designed to not only increase shareholder wealth, but get rid of that, and it has to serve the public good. It has to serve the public need. Now, retirees' money is wrapped up in your money and my money. If you have any 401ks, IRAs, or whatever, if you have any money investment, it's wrapped up in businesses that are probably worth over a billion dollars. And by doing that, if she's going to set it up where they have to be, where they have certain standards that they have to reach, like environmental standards, these federal political views that they're going to have. So what's going to happen is these politicians are going to be using these ideas to get themselves reelected. I mean, it's going to be, they're going to be politically trying to control these corporations that are federal corporations or else you can't do business in America or else we're going to fine you. Politicians should have nothing to do with the corporations. The politicians should have nothing to do with telling a corporation how to run their operations. It's not their place. It becomes a political influence at that point. Yeah, if they want to buy stuff from the federal government or if they want to sell stuff to the federal government, then maybe the federal government can set up some rules and regulations on how or who they do business with. It's just like you would set up, like if I, for example, if there was a company that was polluting the air in my city, I wouldn't go to that place to eat. Like if there was a company that was pouring toxic waste into the river near my house, I would do things in order to avoid that. I would do things in order to avoid doing business with them. And so forth. Like, you're going to make decisions based upon your own value judgments. If you don't like to eat food that is, you know, GMO foods, then you're going to go with non-GMO foods. Like, you're going to make those decisions based upon that. And the, I'm sure the federal government can do that with the money that they're going to spend if the politicians are okay with it, I guess. But they shouldn't have the ability to control these things. Like, one of the things that Elizabeth Warren wants to do is make it so that these companies have to be environmentally friendly, that they have to have two-fifths of the board members are going to be employees of the company, 
hourly employees or something like that, or union members. You're going to put union members on the board of these companies? I mean, I just think that it will. It's going to be an attack on shareholder wealth, big time. And it should not be, we should not be, um, we should not be supportive of that. Definitely not. She calls it accountable capitalism. Accountable capitalism. Accountable capitalism at the barrel of a gun, because if you don't do it, we're going to hold you accountable, and if you still don't go along with it, we're going to come in and arrest you. That's the way that politics works, guys. But anyway, hey, that's all I got for you. Um, Elizabeth Warren, you'll be hearing more about that, I'm sure, tonight on the on the debates, so go ahead and check those out, but definitely come back tomorrow so you can hear uh, my d- debate recap, all right? I'll have that released first thing at 5 o'clock in the morning, and uh, come on back tomorrow, and you'll have clear vision for 2020. Hey guys, I'm excited to announce the new podcast I'm coming out with called First Year in Sales with Ray Eaton. Now, if you're not a salesperson, then it might not be for you. But if you are a salesperson, or if you know another salesperson, go ahead and direct them towards this show. It's going to be a show that is based upon helping somebody that's in their first year in sales, or maybe even somebody that is in sales already and just wants to brush up on some of the sales skills that they need in order to be successful. I'm focusing on habits and also different parts of the sales process in order to help people to become more successful in their sales job. So like I said, if you know somebody that's in sales, or if you yourself are in sales, go ahead and check out this podcast. It's on all of your podcatchers, anything that you would listen to. And that is called First Year in Sales with Ray Ian.